some background on this thing. What we will do is probably record two or three pilots that I'll put out to a listening audience. And somewhere mm-hmm. through this process, we'll have worked out a name for the thing. So we'll right. then move it to a web page, standard download feed, everything like that. So okay. I've got about four or five existing feeds for various podcasting projects that are either live or were live that I still update periodically. Mm-hmm. So there are a variety of folk that this thing could go to. We'll test it out. We'll assemble an audience accordingly, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Sounds fantastic. I like that you have the plan together. It's I've awesome. done this a few times before. So I hear. So I hear. <laughs> so, yes, I'm a little all too familiar with this thing and have a <laughs> variety of folk that follow my work and were really actually very pleased that you and I could get together this evening. Oh, good. they were looking forward to having a additional conversation podcast. Fantastic. So, assuming that people have never heard of you or me previously, we probably should give some potted introduction associated with this thing. Uh-huh. With the view that this is a pilot, which means people will be listening to it for the first time to get a sense of what we're going to do. Right, exactly. How would you give a potted introduction? It's a good question. That's probably something I'd want to think about. But I think sort of like off the bat, I'd say, you know, hey, I'm Jay. I live in the South Bay of California. And um, I've had a very sort of like interesting background in life. Um, and I sort of live my life now in this place between organizing politics and sort of applying the the principle of sociology and that I sort of work with um, on a day-to-day basis and also tech and tech and digital as well um, and sort of like adventures thereof. But that's probably a terribly boring way of describing something that's more interesting. We can certainly explore this more organically. Certainly my background with regards to sociology I'm not sure if you know my background. With no, I don't know. And I'm, re- I'm actually really interested to, to have a conversation about that, too. So, well, it's probably good to start there. My father yeah. is still a practicing sociologist. So oh, I was, really? I was born oh, fantastic. into sociology. Fantastic. He's a kind of post-Marxist sociologist. Well, that's the way he started out. Mm-hmm. So Weber, these kind of theories of yep. organizing and these kind of things. So. I I was born into that environment. I spent a lot of time exploring unions and these kind of organizations, both as a young child and also in my later teenage years, because I basically rediscovered some of the unions that my father had been involved with indirectly and then very directly. Mm -hmm. So I have a kind of keen understanding of certain aspects of sociology. Yeah, definitely. Uh, My background, well, where I'm currently, I've worked for the past five and a half years for Netflix. I've developed an open source project called Noble 8 for about 20 odd years now, which is how, funnily enough, you and I are connecting this evening. <laughs> yeah. That make, now it's the pieces are coming together. So your fiancé, Rick, was part of what I would call a second generation of Apple engineers that used Noble Ape, I think, mm-hmm. in about 2005. And I had the opportunity to meet Rick, I think, in 2010, when I gave a lecture at Stanford Research Institute associated with the history of Noble Ape, which is my open source project. It's about monkeys exploring an environment and collecting a whole lot of sense data, and it's what would be loosely called bottom-up artificial intelligence now, or artificial life. And, Fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's been a thing of mine since I was about 19, mm-hmm. and really it's kind of ebbed and flowed. It's got me in front of a lot of interesting people, both academics and folks like the co-founder of Apple, Steve Wozniak, 
and people like Douglas Rushkov and a variety of kind of media theorists and other folk. So it's been a very useful calling card and got me in some interesting conversations over the years. I'll bet. Uh, what else to say about myself? So I'm from Australia originally. I go back periodically. And one of the things that I found really fascinating, if we can explore one of the topics that I wanted to raise this evening. Yeah. I wrote a book when I was 17, which is actually two novellas combined called Field of Chaos. It features a young Julian Assange, which is a topic that you've rejected for this evening. We'll talk about that at some future <laughs> stage. But also part of it is about a young man who at age 18 decided to create kind of revolutionary movement. And what's interesting through that is it's an actual person. And I had the opportunity to meet this fellow again when I went back to Australia last week. So I've had an interesting experience in the past week associated with meeting someone who I'm very passionately involved with because I was basically the person that wrote down his ideas mm-hmm. and put it out in a book form, but also revisited this book in two different forms. The first was going through it and actually editing it and republishing it in 2010. But mm-hmm. then also I worked with a comic book artist for about six months translating this into a comic book. And really? I have an interest associated with just providing, in the US, the closest social theorist, the closest person I feel politically affiliated is a fellow called Fred Hampton, who was killed in Chicago in the mid to late 60s. I'm very familiar. And that, I think, is probably the closest in actual representation in this country. And my friend, who's called Kingston in the writing, is not that kind of social revolutionary. He's more, well, I mean, really, he's a very contemporary philosophical figure because Assange, to a certain extent, now embodies a lot of his ideas And if you look at the way Assange speaks, even to the press to this day, he uses a lot of the same concepts, which is kind of curious as a throwback to 20-odd years ago in Australia. I didn't think at the time when I wrote Field of Curse that I was embodying Assange's ideas so much as a kind of anarchist hacker mentality. Mm -hmm. But it's one of these curious things that to go and spend time with this Kingston fellow who basically has been in and out of, well, to say in and out is wrong. He spent a small amount of time over the past 20 years in mental health facilities Mm -hmm. and a large portion of time basically living out in the same jungle, subtropical jungle-like environment that he lived when I first met him and knew him. So it's an interesting idea, both in terms of capturing someone who is very motivated and very socially conscious, but also probably slightly mentally ill, Mm -hmm. and then embodying that in a body of work which has carried on you know, it's not a very well-known body of work, but it's certainly something that people periodically read and contact me about. Yeah, there's something so terribly sort of poetic and almost um, apocryphal about folks that are brilliant and also sort of like on the on the odd side of sane. The fringes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that too. And, and also I think there's this interesting piece about like, um, you know, the the, the, Greek, the Greeks wrote about sort of like this, the touching the void piece mm-hmm. that like you know, that that barrier between brilliance and insanity is very, very permeable. I think it's yeah. a very interesting theme. I mean, certainly in in Kingston's case, it was probably early access to really strong hallucinogens. <laughs> uh, and also living in an environment... I mean, we, we think about our society, and this is the nature of, you know, forming communities, particularly political communities. We think mm. associated with the creation of our society 
and the various problems that come through the society, in part through the creation. Kingston mm-hmm. grew up in a commune that was created by engineers and philosophers. So they created an environment which was very perfect in the mid to late 1960s, but was mm-hmm. then utilized. As so many wanted to. Exactly. But was then utilized by pedophiles, and also the, they were socially naive. They never studied sociology. Right. 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 So, I mean, yeah. 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 They created didn't do the background this, research. It's a common well, problem. The problem is that to create a utopia is actually a really difficult problem, and to create a utopia that sustains for multiple generations is oh, yeah. almost impossible. So yeah, I don't fault tr- these people who created mm-hmm. the thing that Kingston grew up in. What I feel through it is that they didn't understand the energies of young men. They didn't understand young male rage. They didn't understand a variety of concepts, which in contemporary American society is heavily utilized by the military and other organizations, which probably are not you know, the best possible uses of this energy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But there's still, you know, it's interesting looking at the creation of a, a utopian society and also reflecting upon what qualities one would want in a utopian society that one existed in. So this is actually interesting because I actually have sort of a generational connection also to sort of the 60s, mm-hmm. the 60s so- social movement around sort of like creating these um, intentional communities because so I grew up in Northern California in Humboldt County mm-hmm. um, and my parents were part of the uh, back to the land movement, mm-hmm. which is where, you know, folks basically, and, and my parents were both left Los Angeles separately mm-hmm. um, and sort of like traveled to this very back country, backwoods, extremely rural, like no electrical, no electrical power, no, mm-hmm. no lines of any kind and sort of met out there and then just basically decided to sort of like live the homestead life without any electricity. And so I actually, that's how I grew up. My first, um, the first house we live in, lived in was actually backpacked down a trail, a 20 minute trail piece by piece, and then assembled um, in this place that no one even knows about that is in Humboldt County now, which is called Panther Gap. So basically grew up sort of like on this off grid homestead mm. um, and which in many ways, right? Like we're also articulating that there are massive problems with doing this, right? As well as I think that there's sort of uh there's just, I think there's a lot of sociological sort of like Im- implications that also like, I feel like I sort of like embody and are like very deeply ingrained in me on a day-to-day basis. I mm-hmm. still, for example, right when I walk in a room, I will often forget to flip the light switch on to this day. And I'm 30 years old now. It's kind of crazy, but I'll mm-hmm. just, I just won't turn the light switch on. And then I'll be standing there in the dark uh, and people will be like, why aren't you turning on the light? And I'll be like, well, <laughs> funny story. We didn't have lights. <laughs> So how long um, did you live in this? Yeah. I mean, in terms of electricity, mm-hmm. how long did you live without electricity? So this is actually, there are sort of, st- there's a, no electricity and then there's, we had stages of different electric- so electrical systems. I understand this, this right? rollout. So, so let's yes, start with exact, the no electricity. Yes. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, uh, oh gosh. When, so we got our first, basically the the thing that we would do is we had one, you know, we had the car cars down there. We had a mm-hmm. finally had a place where you could drive the car into the front of the house, which was not until I was like 10 or 11. Um, and then we would hook the car battery up to like basically a, a, a DC um, television. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then we could have a tiny little television. But before that, actually, we had basically, you know, the one battery powered, big, big old battery powered radio. Um, and so we actually, you know, when the AM band kind of overlaps with the television band, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. So actually the first, my first memories of watching television were actually listening to just certainly. the sounds. Yes, yeah. On through the radio. 
Um, and then at that time, you know, we'd actually had candles and then we couldn't afford to buy candles. So we actually bought these big, you know, um, slabs of wax mm -hmm. and wick on a roll and would actually dip these candles. And people don't understand that folks my age actually still, right, like lived. People people are thinking 1800s, right, when I talk about this. But this mm -hmm. was like, right, this is Northern California mm -hmm. <laughs> in the fairly, fairly recent past. So, we, so you know, we had the candles and then we had radio and then we had T and then we had the car hooked up to the television, which I can't say necessarily was a step forward. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then, the, you know, the black lines on the side of the television would get thicker and thicker, and then you'd have to run out and start the car battery so you didn't kill your car battery. Um, and then we got a couple of solar panels, but it was still all in a direct current system. Mm -hmm. So because at the time, and, you know, now we have like pretty cheap, really well-working inverters. But at the time, an inverter was like five five thousand mm dollars. -hmm. You know, we can afford that. So we had a DC system. So, and then eventually we got a, a generator with an embedded um, inverter in it, so that we we could run. It was, it was basically I was into college before we could actually run a you know computer. Because um, mm -hmm. basically, so we, then we got an old like we got a PC, and then the by the time like it needed to be defragged, like uh, basically the generator, the gas tank in the generator would run out before the thing would finish defragging. So there are a lot of. <laughs> There are a lot of issues with actually having a, a computer system. We finally got this. Um, so then we we're running a, a DC system that we'd run off the solar panels until that basically ran out or, you know, the generator gas ran out or we'd have, you know, we could do a tank, a tank of gas in the generator in the evening, basically. And it was, it's basically this, that's the system my parents are still running up in Humboldt County now. So it basically, you know, I started going, started living with my grandmother who lives in a little town in Northern, Northern California called Rio Dell off, off the mm -hmm. 101, as we say. Um, and so she, you know, she had electricity. And so I'd stayed there a lot during high school. Um, and then I went to college basically. So you know, up until 2000. Actually, I think to be safe, 1995, something like that. Yeah, this um, is the this is yeah. the same time frame that I went to Elands, which is this area, and certainly everything was 12 volts, which is what you're talking yep. about with the car. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Associate, I already had computer skills. I repaired computers at a relatively young age. So mm. the skill that I had when I went there was an ability to firstly repair their 12-volt power supplies for the computers, which oh, frequently yeah. blew out. Yeah, I bet. But you That's also need to appreciate that these people are – they didn't want to lose their engineering skills. So right. they were very intentional associated with maintaining computers, older computers typically. But they had, for example, a bulletin board system, which is the precursor to the internet, where they would get a call once a week, have email download transfers. There was an answering machine, which was about 10 minutes walk from the main part of the community, or the community was spread out over many yeah. hills. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I've experienced this as well as a visitor, not as a, as an active participant. Even to, even to visit, and I'm certainly, you know, not, you know, not comparing myself to a lot of these intentional communities too, as well. Um, and anyway, a lot of folks had a, a much more a difficult um, situation too. And I also think that, and we could probably go, this is probably a, a side topic for another conversation, Tom, but just talking about the sort of like the right to repair movement and mm -hmm. also, you know, how, how there's a, a culture of repairing things. So if you had a thing, if you couldn't fix it, it was, it's actually sort of like, you know, that's not cool. You know, you, yeah. no, <laughs> you, know, you was, have to be able to fix it. It was the primary skill I had coming into this community was that I could repair their equipment. See, and that probably like made you a place in the community too. Right, like there's a social to a certain aspect, extent. Too. I mean, they paid me in marshmallows, which at the time was a prized commodity. <laughs> no, that's amazing. So, no, I mean, my perspective. I look at this. I went into this community twice. The first time I went in, we were basically starved for. Since a, like 
give me a sense of geography here. Can you okay, set the stage? So, okay, so um, if you imagine New South Wales, which is a, a, I don't know, I'm not sure how big it is as a state, but there is a border to Queensland in Australia. There's a town called Taree. Inland from Taree, there's a town called Wingham. And mm-hmm. inland from Wingham, there's a place called Elands, which is named after a place in South Africa. It's actually a mammal creature, but also a place in South Africa. Huh. And Elands exists. So I'd imagine there's a colonial, there's a strong colonial history here. Well, too. this is where it gets interesting because yeah. basically Australia is not like the US. Australia is a lot less <laughs> um, planned and organized outside of the major mm-hmm. cities. The major cities mm-hmm. are very well planned mm-hmm. and organized. But as you get into these smaller towns, they're really just existences of people. They're not right. like formalized and the, even the naming of them yeah. is a curious thing. So yes, there are multi-generational people that have lived in Elands prior to what I guess would have historically been called cyber hippies, but they <laughs> were people who really kind of kept to themselves and were relatively isolated. What the folks who did come created was a population, in particular a transient population of children that moved around. Now, I was there at a turning point. I was there at a major logging blockade. They've had various uh-huh. kind of environmental, I don't know, environmental fracases, for want of a better term, um, basically uh-huh. butting of heads. New South Wales Resource extraction fights. New South Wales historically is very conservative. Um, I mean, certainly... What does that mean, though, in Australia? Okay, well, this, this is a very good point. Um, it means a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that, uh, for example, Elands made a lot of money through cannabis. That's the primary crop and what the way they got money into the community. Oh, this is just like Humboldt County. It's sounding exactly. more and more like no, Humboldt County. It, no, no. In fact, when I thought about rewriting Field of Chaos, Elands maps very well onto Humboldt County. There are small mm. communities on the East Coast, which are slightly better because Elands is a relative distance to a huge city like New York and also the capital of Australia, Canberra. So that was the only distinction so, because they don't exist on the West Coast here. But yeah, it's very similar to Humboldt County. And in particular, I don't know how militarized Humboldt County got. I was in Elands initially at a time where they were selling so much cannabis that they were able to buy militarized vehicles. Just mm-hmm. prior to arriving there, they had a Vietnam-era helicopter um, that they'd mm-hmm. purchased as a community and did counter-surveillance on the police. While wow. I was there, they started to arm themselves. This It's still a very heavily armed community. Mm-hmm. So while I was there, they were getting a lot of weaponry from the former Soviet Union and China and Indonesia oh, yeah, and these right. kind of areas. Yeah. It's difficult because Australia has very, very strict gun laws, far stricter than right. here or even yeah. to a lesser extent the UK or other uh, Western democracies. But it was at a time where they realised that they had to arm themselves heavily because they were in a fight for their area. Right. And right. so after I left, they purchased an armoured personnel carrier they have stockpiled weapons there over the past 20 years. I had an opportunity to talk to Kingston quite candidly about this. Mm. And it appears that there are more people that have come in, mainly from the cities, that have actually kind of created armed fortresses in the area. It's an area where you can walk for long periods of time. You can walk for probably days if you get into the valley areas. It's mainly, I mean, certainly my experiences there have always been on foot. Um, there mm. are small roads, but nothing 
really i mean they've improved it they've put in more paved roads funnily enough google street view has actually gone through good portions of elands and mapped it out which is very really? very strange i need to i need to see this but, it sounds interesting yeah, it's it's a fascinating community and the thing i found talking to kingston about it more in this recent trip to australia was that i was one of maybe three people that heavily wrote about the area and a lot of people have been there and a lot of people have you know left their various marks but few people have written about the area and for this reason everything i produce including this recording will probably be heavily referenced and scrutinized upon because i'm still connected to the area because i wrote about it 23 years ago when i was 17 Mm -hmm. and the perspective is actually that Folks such as myself, even whether or not people write about it, the experiences had there are taken away by people and become parts of various other social movements and things Mm -hmm. like that. And what I find fascinating is the level of criticism and analysis that went on everything that I've produced since then, which was very curious because I guess, I mean, people listen to the stuff that I produce. From the community, you mean? From from the community, community. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of sales of my book and various other things, and also, I mean, they got it in PDF form and then shared it amongst the community. And the level of scrutiny is really very interesting because I think it, it wasn't something that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I heard, I had various reports you know, from various yeah. people that yeah. this was a continuing thing. But I yeah. think what interested me about it and talking in particular Kingston at length, was the fact that it fits into a broader... I mean, I had given them a lot of information. They were very... For example, Alan Watts. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alan Watts. Oh, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. So they weren't aware of Alan Watts prior to me referencing Alan Watts in another discussion that they listened to, Uh and then they kind of dug into it. So it's Uh very much... when, When people leave society to create these kind of communities, they take with them a certain number of books. Some of them go back purchase more books, bring them back to the community, this kind of stuff. But they are really both physically and intellectually isolated. And in that isolation, paranoia can run rampant in certain circumstances, but also the ideas that permeate are of a different quality than, you know, the 2016 presidential election. (laughs) So the ideas that permeate are so completely tangential and removed from the insanity that we experience in regular society. It's almost, it's very utopian and it's beautiful actually to reconnect mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. reconnect with this individual in particular, because it reminded me that I, I have an important relationship to this community still. Definitely. Uh, and that is something that I need to take quite seriously. <laughs> in the way that I uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think, I th- actually, I think that's really important. I actually think it's, it's somewhat of a, I'm sure it's, I'm sure a lot of it is very harsh too, but um, it's almost sort of a badge of honor to have something that you create about this community and they're going, right? Like, hey, here we are. Here's what we think. I think that that's the way that sort of these, and it sounds like you almost, I haven't read it obviously, but it sounds like mm. you almost did a little bit of an ethnography. Well, the thing about, um, the thing about Kingston in particular was that he was at a turning point when I knew him. Mm-hmm. He could have gotten into the heavy militarization. He could have bought extensive firearms and, you know, and actually militarized and probably created a, a group that mm-hmm. would follow him and be armed. But sure. actually by writing this down and producing this work, 
he became very self-critical of what he was saying associated with, in particular, what would be called terrorism quite directly in contemporary society, uh-huh. and that he wasn't that person. So mm-hmm. what's striking here is that he threw out a bunch of ideas in his late teens, and then by reading them... <laughs> and, you were re- you, and by you writing about them in your late exactly, teens. Exactly, exactly. He then realized that actually he was a better representation when he wasn't talking about armed revolution, right? Mm -hmm. But what's curious through this as well is that, I mean, in the day-to-day world, I don't have a keen sense of the fact that by creating this thing, I've created so much additional thought and insight in a community. And it was really very striking. One of the topics that I will put down is the notion of forming communities both intentionally and accidentally. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that you were very receptive to, which is why I really wanted to have an opportunity to chat with you in an extended format. Mm. Because I think sometimes you can create communities without even, if, if you, un- I mean, you obviously come from a background of understanding communities and then taking some of these understandings to create new communities. Yeah, I feel like what I sort of like, you know, I had I also had a choice whether or not to go to college, I think, too. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of folks who didn't um, coming from my sort of cohort out of high school, but I felt like I had all these questions. It wasn't like, what you know, I want to go after, you know, the money and get a job or whatever. I knew I had to do that anyway, and no matter what, but it was sort of like I had these questions, and one of them was about why do communities, you know, respond in the way that they do to certain social forces? And why are those social forces, right, like enacted on them? Um, because that was something um, that was, it was just sort of like, that was the day to day for me too. And, you know, if you think about it, this was, I, I grew up in Humboldt County in, in the nineties during like the height of the drug war, right? Which was mm. this other sort of talking about highly militarized. And it was mostly, you're talking about these folks arming themselves. And there was, there was definitely some of that, but it was actually mostly much more asymmetrical, mm, um, well, you know, in Northern California. Yeah. So yeah, right, exactly. And so it was almost like at times sort of like living under some, like a little bit of an occupation. Obviously, I think the folks that you're talking about have a lot, there's a lot more going on there. But for my tiny piece right out in the backwoods, there's no one to, you know, no one watching out for um, folks that were in my family and my community sort of like place, which is like working class, really poor folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just sort of like no, right, no regulatory system on, you know, how law enforcement was was happening in these places. So it was just sort of like you know, these, these guys thought they were cowboys, you know, basically. And, um, and you know, all this nineties era drug war money just sort of like got dumped into it. And then on top of that, there was also the timber wars going on, sure which is like, and are you familiar with sort of like the history of the, the timber wars, basically like all the timber companies got sold in wall street mm-hmm. in the area. And so they had a bunch of debts to pay. And so they basically mm-hmm. started, you know, liquefying all of the resources, which happened to be like all of the, you know, trees and, you know, the industry, um, that were around me when I was growing up, but that also like sort of trickled down all the way into, um, you know, the, who would sit next to who at the lunch table in elementary mm-hmm. school, right? Like the logger kids would sit at one table and the hippie kids would sit at another table. And, um, it was just so prevalent. It felt like that was the, those were the things that sort of like made my life in many ways, like really, really difficult and hard and tough and complex. And I just didn't understand why, um, or like where it was coming from. And so that's actually one of the reasons why I went to school for sociology. And I think 
some folks don't know this, but there's like, you know, there's branches of sociology. So like there's more theoretical and like more of an applied side. And so I really went down the application side looking at, you know, how are, how are communities right now? Why are they doing what they're doing? What's working? What's not? And how are they making their lives better or not? And that was like the big, I just had like these burning questions. I'm also sort of a pretty curious human. So I was just like, I have to, I absolutely have to know why this is happening. And when I, I knew when I found out why I was not going to be happy about it too. That was the other thing. Um, and knew that there was going to be some, you know, there's, there's some things that we have to work on. There was sort of like this overwhelming sense, but I also feel like, you know, right. Like I'm, I'm a generation from a community of people who left cities. Right. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. that sort of like general racial piece of, um, I actually came back to urban areas, um, which was actually really, really difficult, both economically, but also socially. Um, I still have terrible sense of direction in cities. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I never know where I am. Thank goodness for GPS. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of applications, um, of how, you know, basically how the pendulum sort of swings back and forth generally, generationally, um, as well here. A couple of questions here, Joe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you have a vision of what your life would have been like if you hadn't gone to university and if you'd stayed in the community? Oh, absolutely. I basically had, you know, a choice and I basically had a choice whether or not, and I think this was also the the place I was at in terms of militancy. Um, and just sort of like, right. I was, I didn't get to this, you know, very militant place sort of like, right. All of a sudden it happened through, you know, my entire life sort of like growing up in this place and looking at, you know, trying to, you know, sue the logging companies and, and then, mm. you know, you save a little piece of whatever, but it was like literally very visceral sort of like you would go, you would go to bed one night and there would be trees and you'd wake up the next day and it was like slashed and, you know, basically slashed a pile of a slash pile. Right. Mm. Um, and, but also like there's almost a, a clear cut is also like a, a, a social thing, right? There are communities that are destroyed when, you know, logging happens in that unsustainable way, you know, communities that had been there for decades um, and actually doing more sustainable logging were completely destroyed. And then, right, like there are kids who had to, whose parents had to move away. And like, you know, it was very, very the upheaval of it socially as well as environmentally. And I think it's so strange that we sort of like separate those things out as issues, right? Like you're an environmental, you're a climate activist or, you know, you're a human rights activist, but those things were the same to me growing up. So I think I sort of like reached this crossroads where I was like, I have some understanding that the decisions that are, you know, causing this upheaval in my life are coming from people who are very far away and don't necessarily understand or they're allowed for whatever reasons to wash their hands of it. But I also grew up in this place where it was, this was also like one of the main fronts of the Earth First movement. Um, and I, you know, I supported my first tree sit when I was like eight years old. We go bring mm-hmm. firewood down, you know, for whoever was sitting in whatever tree, right? And the headwaters fight actually happened really, really close to, um, our, our land and our sort of like community and place in a lot of ways too. So it was basically like go sit in a tree or like go to college, right? And I've always been sort of a systems thinker. Um, and I knew that, you know, saving that force was really, really important. I still, to this day, like, you know, people, people doing that, I absolutely understand the place they're in and like support them, you know, all the way. But I wanted to get some answers about why it was happening because 
there was some sort of, right, like there's a system, I knew there was a system malfunction, right, Mm. happening that was impacting all kinds of other people's lives in the same way that was impacting mine, you know, and I just, I just sort of wanted to know why it was really sort of like curiosity, um, I think, and also this sort of like sense that I was really missing something and that I was in some sort of bubble. So then, of course, I went to the University of California, which is a which is a different kind of bubble. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Of course. Santa Cruz, right? Yeah, exactly. You see Santa Cruz, yes. Yep. So if you had stayed, you would be involved with tree sits and these kind of things. Do you see – certainly I've had various points in my life, leaving Australia is a good example of this, where I couldn't stay any longer. Like mm-hmm. I, there were a series of factors which just made it impossible for me to stay in Australia. Right, and emotional factors and and sort of like physical considerations. Vast or? numbers in all possible directions, <laughs> which I can list in top tens going into the hundreds. Yeah, but, I feel that. I, so I what interests me about these times of change and the points at which people make these decisions is oftentimes there's a narrative. It's very easy for people to stay in circumstances. In fact, I think one of the things associated with communities, even the worst possible communities, is that mm. they will try to reassure people that staying in place is actually the best possible decision. I live mm. in one of these communities currently in San mm. Jose. So what interests me, particularly with thinking people who, you know, clearly have many points of analysis and do a good amount of self-analysis, is associated with these times of change and just recognizing, you know, what life would be if change wasn't enacted. And I think that's certainly one of the fascinating things that I hear coming through your analysis here, um, which is certainly very familiar to me as well. <laughs> so one of the movements that you were a part of that I'm quite aware of and aware for a variety of different reasons is 350.org. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for me personally, I've never been, the whole car culture was very much a culture which I pretty heavily abandoned when I lived in Australia. Oh, yeah. And then also my mother was a diplomat for the latter parts of my teens and up until my mid-30s. And the last post she was in was in the UAE um, through mm-hmm. the start of the War on Terror. In fact, it was mm. 2003 mm-hmm. through to about 2006. Yeah. And that impacted me very heavily because there had been various acts of violence that had occurred to her leading up to being there. Well, one act of violence, one circumstance where her life was in danger, just various things leading up in relatively calmer places. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then through this period, the UAE was slightly safer than Saudi Arabia, but still yeah. had attacks on diplomats. And mm-hmm. the embassy that she was a part of failed security checks on a regular basis People were able to get in guns and explosives regularly. And mm-hmm. this kind of accumulated over a period of time, mainly when I returned to the US. And the whole car culture and also reading about the people who she was interacting with that I could know about indicated to me that there is a terrible paradox that goes on associated with foreign policy, oil policy, all this kind of stuff revolved around these cars Mm-hmm. that create a society which is in no way it's not just environmentally unsustainable it's completely geopolitically unsustainable oh yeah yep and the one thing that i can talk about that my mother did was there was a fellow called douglas wood 
who was an Australian contractor who was filmed. He, he was part of all these, you know, filmed telling Australia to leave various wars that Australia was involved with, progressively getting more and more beaten up, progressively getting more and more black eyes in the video footage. And my mother received an award for assisting with his rescue. Um, in intelligence capacity, but still assisting Uh with the rescue very directly. This is one of the few things that I can actually know about stuff that my mother did. However, still to this day, huh? The way the US media works is that the outside American diplomats, they will just report diplomats being killed. Mm -hmm. So for half a dozen times over this period of time, I heard about diplomats being killed. Oh, that's circumstances terrifying. which were similar to where my mother was. Right. There was also a female, di- well, she wasn't a diplomat. She was a humanitarian worker that was captured and then shot in the back of the head and kicked into a ditch and things like this. And so oh, this period awful. of time impacted me to a certain extent. And the whole car culture thing really, really, really irritates me to this day. Yep. I think it's something yep. that having been involved with this perverse thing, I feel that the dependency on foreign oil, but really just not even doing things smart for so long mm, associated mm-hmm. with this thing. Yeah. Just a point of irritation. I'm interested oh, yeah, in absolutely. learning more about – I mean, obviously, you were embedded, heavily involved mm-hmm. with 350.org. I don't mm-hmm. get a sense of it now. Is it an ongoing – I mean, obviously, it's ongoing, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. There are a bunch of pieces. So, what I my sort of piece of it is, so there's a there's a movement that started on um, college and university campuses, essentially to look at. And again, like when we talk about, and you're talking about like culture, it's absolutely a culture, right? So, and that indicates a system. So, there's what we have is like a it, it's it's a system that has multiple arms and impacts in foreign policy and sort of like and all the way down to it's like probably one of the most prevalent but also like invisible systems that sort of like impacts our lives as the fossil fuel, you know, system. So this, it's this um, movement that started on college campuses to get their schools and universities to remove their fossil fuel uh, investment money from their school's portfolio, essentially. So to actually look at, let's, let's, let's see the parts of this system that are embedded economically and actually touch our lives that we have right control over. Because I think one of the issues with climate change is that it's this sort of like, you think about, giant huge sort of like weather events and that sort of like there's almost it's almost like the weather where it's just happening to you um and it's i I think a tricky part of it for people is to actually understand how it touches their lives on a daily basis but also how like what they have actual control over which is actually remarkably few things unfortunately and i think that's one of the things that's been so tough in changing this culture um but so it's basically college university students who said they actually visited a mountaintop removal site in appalachia and said this is terrible we, you know, our, our school's money is, is doing this, is invested in this. And so 350 came into that, um, situation sort of added, you know, basically this list of, um, the top 200 fossil fuel, coal, oil, and gas companies. So all the companies that are holding the reserves underground. Um, and so actually, you know, really, I think it was, it's a, it's a brilliant idea and movement to start out with, but also there's a very clear, um, sort of praxis and reason for it happening, right? Here's, here's all the reserves that basically we can't burn anymore. Um, and until these companies say we're not going to burn these, which we know that they're not going to do based on, you know, basic capitalism 101, right? That these, these schools and universities are going to pull out their money. 
And so I came on board um, with 350 and I was, I was actually working at Media Matters for America, sort of when the call came and I was sort of looking to move on. Um, we'd actually just done um, the, worked on the Rush Limbaugh advertiser boycott, um, which is another sort of really interesting sort of like system <laughs> to sort of like get into and look at. Um, and I came on board and actually built out, so there's a, it was on colleges and universities, but I built out the um, sort of the, the foundation and the, and the, you know, basically resources distribution for building um, that campaign into pension funds and faith communities um, and basically anybody, anybody that wasn't a university. And so I got to work with a lot of folks that were basically all across the country looking at, oh, I, you know, my church has money or my pension fund has money. How do I, how do I also get it out of this? Because I am basically sort of like in that same emotional place of I am so mad and tired and um, I am worried about the future generations. Um, we want to move our money. So I built, I sort of like built the organizing, um, piece of that, obviously with a lot of, a lot of other wonderful, wonderful folks. And a lot of that is still functioning, right? So while I was there, it also, there's actually a really strong, this is actually how I know other Australians, Tom, um, is that, you know, uh, folks working in Australia doing, doing similar things. And we actually managed to coordinate globally, um, on several continents, all folks working on fossil fuel divestment, which is really exciting, obviously, because the economic system is, is global as well. And the fossil fuel system is global. So, um, I got to sort of, I, I consider it a privilege to have been part of that, um, sort of, you know, growing. And that's something that's very much still in progress. Um, I think folks are still, there's still divestment wins coming through. There's still a lot of, a lot of work on that front. And obviously three, two, 350 is working on, um, a ton of other projects too, on the grassroots side. Uh, but yeah, the story of 350 also is really is really interesting in terms of it being a different sort of different DNA than other older environmental organizations in a lot of way, more traditional environmental organizations. It's funny having a background in simulation because certainly I get to meet academics that are really fascinating in terms of their general knowledge of their particular areas. A paleobiologist by the name of Roy Plotnick who's in Chicago has been almost like a mentor for me in a variety of different areas. Mm -hmm. And when I went to stay with him a few years ago, he teaches an environmental science course for first-year university students. Mm. And I said to him, my great frustration is that the scientists involved in this, in, in what is an information war, fundamentally, mm -hmm. are so reserved in their judgments are so cautious about the way they state things that i think we've moved beyond a variety of tipping points what interests me with 350 yeah. Yeah. in terms of the parts per million thing is that the simulation data is potentially not good enough for even that prediction it might need to be yep. considerably less than 350 and yeah, what interests right. me also as a simulator when I started writing Noble Ape in the mid-90s, by about, I don't know, maybe 99, 2000 in that time frame, I mm -hmm. was contacted by climate scientists who were interested in the weather simulation of Noble Ape. Now, this is something that I created hmm. a priori as a physics student, undergraduate, not right. really thinking about so any for of climate, this stuff. they're interested for climate modeling purposes. Exactly. Yeah. So yep. the conversations I had there indicated, and similarly, one of the people who fascinates me through this thing is a 
I don't know what he is. He's a physicist, I guess, by the name of Freeman Dyson, who's in his mid-90s now. He's a really mm-hmm. – he looks a bit like um, Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, we're, we're losing a lot of those – of those yeah. that What's generation. What's fascinating with him is that he also is critical of – but it's an interpretation thing associated with how are you critical associated with the simulations. Uh-huh. But anyway, my feedback to Roy Plotnick was if this thing has moved beyond – as I mean, my perspective is it's moved beyond a tipping point. We're now in a circumstance which is more akin to science fiction than science in terms of where we are. Yeah, um, and that's just by the math. Yeah. Yes. That, um, yes, it's curious. <laughs> like the math moves you into just, science fiction. Just the math, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. N- no big, no big. Yeah. But, but that the reserved nature and also one of the turning points, we're going to talk about Unitarianism and Quakers in this conversation as well. I want to get to that point. I look forward but, to how we're going to segue to that. One of, well, <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. Oh, One okay, of great. the things that fascinates <laughs> me through doing this artificial life development is that my connection with the, I guess you'd call him militant atheist, I don't know what you'd call him, but Richard Dawkins, who historically has tried to show himself as a bastion of science, but through mm-hmm. his own particular bitter fight, has completely forgotten about the attacks on science and understanding of science through climate change. And what I prefer to call sweatbox earth, which I think is a far better metaphor for certain circumstances and then just absolute mm, crazy visceral. weather. Exactly. Like, <laughs> visceral why, why, you know, global warming became climate change through a series of very curious moves. But anyway, yeah. so yes, one of the yes. things that fascinates me is the role that the militant atheists have, because a lot of them actually sided, I mean, Dawkins himself sided with Cato Institute libertarians that weren't mm. interested in talking about, you know, climate. Yeah. And in doing that, it's almost like half the battle is lost because then you can have the rise of deniers, you can have the rise oh, yeah. of, of all this kind of pseudo-nonsense, which if you believe the statistics a majority of people in this country believe, you then are in the circumstance where the whole thing is moved beyond, you know, a number or a benchmark, or these kind of things. And I guess my great frustration, which I voiced to Roy Plotnick at the time of staying with mm. him, was that the role of scientists in this process has almost been completely subjugated because of the way in which they dealt with what ultimately was more a sociology problem in terms of communicating these things mm, than it was mm-hmm. a science problem, a traditional science yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm also, I, I have to say, I, I definitely resonate with, I think, I think multiple boats were missed at multiple docks, mm. for sure. I think that, yeah, I, that it definitely is something that has frustrated me. But I also think there's this piece of, I think that climate scientists were in some way, right, not just, didn't just decide to roll over. They were sort of beaten down, um, re- you know, really, really hard, um, especially strategic, in the early stages. It takes a strategic, I mean, my, my view is that uh, through a variety of different things, that what his, the way academics were historically trained in terms of training in a variety of different areas meant that they had the ability to use different forms of reasoning for different circumstances. It's a bit like not Cub Scouts, not ninjas, somewhere between Cub Scouts and ninjas, you know, <laughs> in terms of like having a That's variety a large spectrum, of, but I get you. of having a variety of skills, getting a variety of badges, which means uh, that in yes. certain circumstances, yes, okay. you'll be able to use different things. And right. unfortunately, the way that science in particular is taught is so 
unless you find polymaths like Roy Plotnick, unless you actually seek out these folk. What's fascinating as well, I spent a period of time at Michigan State University a couple of years ago, maybe three, four years ago now, probably even longer. And they had a fellow who was part of the intelligent design court case, one of the intelligent design court cases associated mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. you know, getting these in or out of textbooks. And Right. These are, and these are mostly state-based Yes, exactly. Fights, well, it's right, actually... Yeah. It, to say state-based is not quite true because a number of states will all buy the same textbooks. Right, no, exactly. There's, there's right, one right. powerful state which typically has the board which does this thing and then all the other minor states will follow underneath very beautifully. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating that these these things are all intertwined and they're philosophically all intertwined as well. And as you say, the flaws and mistakes that are made through early parts of this are not just about climate change, they're about a variety of different things. And I think one piece here too, and this is something I wanted to bring up, because I was actually just recently looking at, are you familiar with James Hansen? Mm-hmm. Um, so he, James Hansen just actually recently put out a report, and folks may remember you know, his his earlier report or reports were really heavily criticized for how um, dire they mm-hmm. were. Um, and But the other thing that Hansen was criticized for, and I think in some ways continues to be criticized for, which is interesting, um, is actually a really important piece, which is that he actually makes direct policy suggestions, mm. right? So there's, which lends itself right into an interpretation application of the data. It takes that sociology, if you want to use that sort of weird analogy from the sort of, sort of theoretical space into more of the applied space where he actually blends the policy, takes the data and says, here's what we need to do with our governments um, and with our, you know, people-based systems too. And he was very roundly criticized for, you know, melding the policy and the data. Um, and I actually think that's, that's a, that's a key failing actually is right. And, and it may be that, you know, there was no body that was, you know, could could look with the power to say, okay, let's look at the data. We have a really poor shot. We need to get on this right now. Here are the recommendations, and and then also right there needs to be a social movement piece to actually like force it to happen, right? Because remember, there are opposing forces, right? Fossil fuel companies that actually want the system to continue as is um, and directly benefit from it, right? So remember, there's an opposing force here. But to think about right, like really blending the the science based policy recommendations in, which is actually for me one of the key failings of some of that early science is, well, you know, they're just sort of like squawking about the data, very rightly so. It's terrifying data. Um, but there were, you know, no one was sort of able to say, here's what we have to do. And here's how we force people to actually do it, you know, early enough. So actually to interpret and then act upon the data, which to me is that key, sort of like that key part. I'm sort of like on the side of, I'm, I'm sort of like, I want to do things all the time. And that was also sort of my, pro- I've, I've actually worked for Two, so it's two city governments, one of them Washington, D.C., city government, but also looking at, right, there's policy recommendations and there's getting it done, but there's also making sure that those policy recommendations are, you know, based on actual research, but also, right, you can't skip those second two steps after you do the research. It's really, <laughs> especially in cases where, you know, the planet may become less than livable for, for this species, potentially, right? So there's that piece, too. Certainly. I mean... There's also the moral quandary of perhaps that's not a bad thing. Like maybe humans, oh, yeah. like obviously we love Absolutely. humans and humans exist, but there's a tipping point here, which I think may have already, if it's already been moved past, it just has to be philosophically, you know, you just have to accept the fact that we might have seriously fucked things up to get an explicit rating on this podcast from the start. And 
Right. Also, the thing, the things that interest me, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, and it's not a perfect example, but it moves me to tears every time I see it. There's a, a solar, what would one call it? A solar farm, for want of a better term, called mm-hmm. Vanpa. As you drive into Las Vegas, you go from Southern California, LA, typically into Las Vegas. There's a valley, which I remember going through previously prior to a Vanpa. Mm-hmm. And now there is a Vanpa there. A Vanpa, I think, is two or three large solar collecting farms, which have also greened the valley because it's steam mm-hmm. powered. Mm-hmm. And when I see this, it just reminds me, I get certain, I get certain inklings of the future. Like as an early science fiction reader, like in my childhood, in my early teens, that sometimes oh, yeah. I will walk into these or be in these environments and think I am in the future. Like I'm in the future as I projected the benefits could possibly be. A vampire mm-hmm. isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. It's fried half a dozen yeah. birds in the past however many years, but it is so much better than a majority of what one is generally exposed to. And yeah. it also reminds yeah. you that the US could have created 60 of these things with the price of just the conflict in Iraq, maybe 80 of these things now. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. you get a sense of these things as being representations of ideals that you can agree with quite fundamentally, you get these little bits of hope still there. So it oh, might not be universal extinction, but there are still these little bits of hope. Well, and- it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, what was the and? And I think, yeah, this is the thing that I return to in my general sense that what also interests me through this and 350 is part of that is the use of, I'm historically been part of a, a movement called simulation science, which is that you can create computer simulations that will actually feed back into science very directly. Uh-huh. This may not sound radical uh-huh. to you. This sounds radical to a lot of people, primarily uh-huh. because it means that there is a language through simulations, through literally taking lots and lots of mathematical computation, which isn't present in everyday mathematical language, physics, even philosophy. And you get to this point by actually running large-scale simulations, observing patterns, naming those patterns, and then using this structure this physics for want of a better term to feed back into general science and this is a movement that has only has never really broken the surface it's appeared in some publications but through my work with uh, other simulators i found that there are skills that are necessary which unfortunately have not translated very heavily back to things like environmental science simulation yeah, yeah. but what comes through this is more perhaps the Freeman Dyson critique that you would say that the maths and the science and these things have to be there, but there's a maturity that needs to come through something, which may mean that we do not actually have the knowledge that we need at any point in time in this thing. It might come actually quite a bit after these decisions will need to have been made. And what I find fascinating through this is the notion that caution is never an option. Like being cautious associated with changing things particularly because of the kind of hyper capitalism whatever one wants to call it exists currently never has this kind of philosophical caution which is so much part of a lot of the legacy science as well and what's Mm. fascinating is that perhaps scientists are actually the wrong people to impact in any way policy perhaps it's more of a philosophical thing that needs to be analyzed through perhaps particular perspectives of least damage 
ethics, which doesn't really exist in any strata of the political sphere. Right. Yeah, I, I feel it. Right. And there's also like a communication piece here, too. That is, it's very hard to describe verbally, um, for example, climate modeling, right? What we're talking about is, you know, that you run this many simulations, right? Like this increasingly, right? These simulations are, numbers of these simulations are resulting in climate conditions that are inhospitable to human life, mm. right? So, and and basically, you know, with 350, I actually got a really good taste of how do you describe in terms that, you know, folks can not only understand, um, but also sort of like have a visceral connection to and are yet are done in a way that does not completely disempower people into wanting to do nothing. Right. That's that's like a, it's it's like, can we describe this mathematical probability where it's like, well, what we want is the most shots at, you know, having, you know, a, a, a biosphere that supports our species, and that's what we're looking at for right now. That's not exactly a great tagline, right? Like it's not, it's not super great. But also one of the things I think that's exciting about some of the technology is that I think it, some of it allows us to, to better visualize that data, you know, in ways that like human eyeballs and human brains um, that do not have scientific and mathematical backgrounds, because that's the majority of folks, unfortunately, it can actually sort of like get down with and see like, what are the ways that we can actually communicate this data. But I also think that I'm and I'm a lot and I'm a big stickler for the fact that the world needs organizers, right? The world needs like, people like me who are so you know, like, and I'll, I'll completely own it. Like, I am stubborn as an ox, like the world actually needs people who are just going to be like, no, I will actually fight, you know, no matter what the math says, like to my dying breath. Right. Like I will be the one bailing on the ship, even though there's a giant hole in the bow and the water is rushing in. I don't care. Like I will still be bailing on that ship, um, you know, and sometimes that's what it takes. I think, you know, I've read a lot of sort of like biographies of folks who've made like, you know, not just individuals. Right. Because like, this is a community sort of like bailing it takes many people to bail the water, but also like it takes a sense of learning how to actually fail um, and keep going. But like as a community, and we're talking about sort of like intentional communities, right? Like one of the strengths of, um, you know, I think communities that actually have th those legs on them is, and and also one of the characteristics of social movements, which I've um, had a lot of background studying both historically and sort of like in applied fashion, looking at being part of being in service to, et cetera, is that you have to learn how to lose and keep going. Um, so to be able to take the loss, redo whatever you can fix, or maybe just, you know, keep moving forward, sort of like as a community, we have to be able to, you know, take this, look at it honestly, and evaluate the facts pragmatically, but also say, you know what, no, no matter what the mass says, I'm not giving up, because that's also absolutely required, you know, if we're going to do anything. And that's sort of like, that's my hope speech, by the way, Tom, that's, that's as good as it gets. <laughs> Yes, recursive failure, learning from recursive failure. I think that's a familiar topic in my life. Or well. just being dumb enough that you don't give up, right? You know, I'm let's willing to take that one too. Let's talk about Unitarianism and Quakers. All because right. certainly from my perspective, I've, because of the stuff that I've done historically and because of the stuff that has come through what I would call the fundamentalist atheist community. My podcasting career, literally from when I started podcasting up until now, has been heavily censored associated with talking about any aspects of religion. Ooh, great. Let's dig in then. <laughs> so what fascinates me, my my experience of Unitarianism 
it's a very small community in Australia, but my both my uh-huh. maternal grandparents were Unitarians. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a religion, it's a perspective on Christianity that is very rarely talked about. So when I saw that in your LinkedIn bio, it also excited my mother, by chance. (laughs) She said, what can I do to promote this podcast? My mother has never promoted anything I have done in podcasting. Amazing. You're welcome for helping you with that milestone. Extremely excited about the potential to discuss Unitarianism in a podcast. Absolutely. So my experience is obviously very light touch, but similarly, my experience with Quakers is also light touch. My father's <laughs> second wife, my mother was his first wife. He's had a couple more since, but his second wife was a Quaker as well, nominally, although we attended a wide variety of different religions and different groups within religions with my father and his wife at that time. Mm-hmm. So I have a keen sense of Unitarianism. I have a keen sense of Quakers and I always thought the two were very simpatico in a number of ways. Oh yeah. Major so, love. In terms of your particular perspective, obviously you worked for a Unitarian organization at one stage. I did. I worked for the Unitarian Universalist Association. I actually worked for the social change sort of arm, wing, um, whatever you want to call it, um, in an office in Washington, D.C. Um, I worked for like the campaigning arm called Standing on the Side of Love, um, which is a great model for, I think, progressive left um, faith communities that want to do um, social change work um, that's strategic and sort of works online. And I was working with that campaign in Washington, D.C. for a while. Absolutely. So my experience of my local community here in Spartan Keys, which is a region in San Jose, is that all the community activists, for want of a better term, all the community representatives are some form of Christian. A majority of them are Catholics. Mm -hmm. And they all embody what I would consider an authoritarian right perspective, which has been embodied most recently in the campaign of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And what strikes me through that is it's a least, it's a fear of change. Or ironically, they talk about change all the time. They use words like progressive and things like that. No. But what it actually means in terms of what they do is that they don't want to rock any boats. They don't want to create anything. They're perfectly happy with the depravity that the city enacts in this area because it's better to have a friend who's the local councilman than it is to actively fight at every possible line as Mm -hmm. the things that are enacted in this community go against the community again and again and again and again. And in contrast, what interests me through organized religion and organized religion's response in these circumstances, particularly when they just uniformly back state, for want of a better term, is that this analysis obviously hasn't gone on in some fundamental level. How is Unitarianism different in that light? That's an inter- that's a really interesting question. And let me just state my qualifications for, for giving this, um, which is that you're asking a unprogrammed Quaker pagan <laughs> to describe Unitarianism, which I think is as good a a good, as good a background as any. I guess I'm more um, interested in, in the social aspect. Like uh-huh. these Catholics who look are really genuinely nice, friendly people on some level. However, their representation of their religious views is to back things which are so against the community. Oh, yeah. To yeah. be surreal. So how is Unitarianism <laughs> different associated with this kind of social 
analysis? Well, I think so. I'll start sort of in a roundabout way and say, I think one of, so for me and what I sort of heard and resonated with, with what you're talking about is, is this sort of authority and authoritarianism um, that is both sort of like, you know, you can look at that. I mean, Catholicism is very, you know, you I think most people would say it's a pretty hierarchical sort of, you know, distribution, right? And if you think about, you know, religion is also sort of like a way of organizing people. Um, you know, faith traditions have different ways of organizing people. Catholicism is probably on the side, um, at least of, of, you know, of, of more hierarchy. Um, and I think that there are other faith traditions that are um, organized in, in slightly different ways. And then that also sort of plays out theologically um, and has you know, bearing on the way that folks think about, right, the, both the individual and the, and the collective experience of, you know, the divine or as many, you know, West Coast Unitarians say, you know, God or what have you, right? But I think there's also this piece of sort of how like tolerance for, um, tolerance for and language for um, agnostics, um, and I think for me, one of my, one of the things I really loved about Unitarianism and some of this is as an outsider, right. But I was really embedded in Unitarian communities and also with my Quaker background, like the Quaker kids and Unitarian kids would hang out all the time together. Right. I think there's a lot of really wonderful, you know, similarities and things that jive really, really well. And then also some, you know, straight up, you know, societal practices that are really similar in a lot of ways and kind of feel homey when, you know, we, as a Quaker, I walked in a Unitarian space and it kind of smells like home, right? It's sort of like, ooh, and I'm a Quaker, right? And, and Unitarians, you know, have, have churches. I'm an unprogrammed Quaker. So we generally sort of like, you know, meet, meet wherever, you know, meeting houses, some, you know, they're, they're less fancy, right? And, sure. and Unitarians have some really beautiful churches. I actually sang in the choir of All Souls Church in Washington, D.C., a little shout out, um, and, you know, loved it and loved the experience. And, you know, all the ministers were talking about social justice and, you know, there's pictures of the ministers getting arrested in civil disobedience, fighting for social change, right, on the walls. There's a, you know, plaque with Angela Davis speaking from the pulpit of all mm -hmm. souls, right, um, out front of it. You know, I love that community. But, and, what, and, and really, like, it's, it's a question of – and you can take this all the way, way back to sort of like does the, does the faith tradition believe in original sin, right? Because looking at it theologically – if, um, and actually makes a big difference sort of like in the whole sort of like faith traditions orientation toward humans. And I didn't know this until I sort of like came in and basically hung out with a bunch of Unitarian ministers who, by the way, are some of the, I have to say, some of the most educated, you know, politically aware, spot on, you know, human beings, you know, I've, I've, I've met as a, as a group per capita, right? Very, very high you know, just level of knowing what's up. Just sort of like the whole orientations, uh, the whole faith sort of orientation toward community and people and also like how many layers are there between, you know, theoretically, you know, a regular person, lay person, you know, and the divine, right? Because Quaker unprogrammed friends believe there are none, right? We talk directly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot of folks say there there are levels or their implicate their um interpretation of, of Catholicism is that right, you talk to your 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 priest and you know they talk to whoever, right? So and that actually it sounds subtle. It sounds so subtle. Um, but it actually makes it, it to me um, it makes a, a big difference. Um, and I sort of trace maybe some of the faith orientation, you know, to, to those theological roots, roots in a lot of ways too. But I think also there are some faiths that are, or were actually formed in response to the more, more hierarchical faiths, right? So, hey, we don't like, we, the, here are the problems with, with this, how it is, right? And here's what we're going to create. Um, instead, the other, 
I think key thing about Unitarians is is this sort of like sense of that everybody has sort of a, like a little piece of whatever's holy, right? Um, so like everybody's got that. And it's really sort of like real and like brought into um, Unitarian services. They, you know, they light the chalice. That's what it means. Like, hey, got this light. Um, you got this light. Everybody's got it. Like, here it is. It's awesome. Um, and Quakers base also sort of like both use the language of having right the light in the light. And so I think there's a real sort of like jive, even though the trappings look very different, right? Quakers are Quakerism was very much formed sort of like historically in response to some one of the most hierarchical sort of authoritarian times um, dominated by the church, right? So and then unprogrammed friends sort of like took that, you know, to the turn that up to a 10 and and um, formed un, unprogrammed Quakerism, which is basically in some ways I would argue anti-hierarchical. Um, and that's sort of like, that's also where it is for me. It's about the, you know, the orientation of, can I talk to God? Is God still talking? Did I mess up really bad generations ago? And so I'm inherently like bad inside or am I inherently good? And those seem like trivial things, but in, in my experience, and I'll speak for myself here. I may have just done a poor job of summarizing multiple religions, but Hey, just another day. Um, but you know, in my, in, from my experience, that's sort of what it's about. Um, but I've also, I also have to say, I've, I've met wonderful, super progressive Catholic folks as well, who actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of room in hierarchical traditions for folks really fighting within them and rebelling and tiny, tiny acts of resistance become, I think, much more powerful in those faiths too. And I'm certainly not saying that anybody's perfect. And I think also that the, in, in many ways, um, I really appreciate the ritual. I think there's like a social psychological aspect of ritual. And that's sort of like why I really get down with paganism too. You know, I think there's something you know, wonder a wonderful psychological impact, whether or not, or how much or not you believe, you know, in doing rituals sometimes. And that's something that I find myself as a non-programmed Quaker actually missing sometimes. Sometimes I go, hey, I'd love to like do a spell, you know, right now, um, which I think most of my Quaker friends would be actually fine with. But yeah. One can create one's own rituals as well. I mean, I think these things can exist completely. In, the, in fact, what interests me yeah, yeah. is the nature of rituals as they exist independently of religion, but perhaps sometimes reinforced by religion. Right. And then you have different religious sort of like, you know, traditions, they have different ways of looking at those, right? You know, being a solitary practitioner. And like, if you look at paganism, Wicca, for example, like that, that's it, you know, you think of, you know, witches and covens, but it's actually like, in some ways, it can be applied very individualistically as well. And that's totally fine, right? But I think different, different faiths see the sort of like individual, I'm going to go, right? Like, do you go talk to God directly, you know, or not? It's like a pretty key piece, again, when you talk about individual traditions. One of my projects, dare I say it, hobbies, is associated with genetics. It's fascinating to me, actually, because I have a relatively unique perspective on this, having done years of simulation associated with it. So my father, historically and genetically, is Ashkenazi, which is European Jew, for want of a better term. Mm-hmm. And this is something which intentionally I didn't have a lot of exposure to through my childhood. In fact, my parents were divorced relatively early, so even more so. What I found through my late teens was that I dated an Orthodox Jewish girl for a period of time and embodied a lot of the rituals associated with just notions of safety and these kind of things. So she went and joined the Israeli army while I was in university in Australia. Mm -hmm. And 
I observed some of the Jewish rituals mainly to get a sense that potentially I was keeping her safe, which is a strange paganistic thing as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I find fascinating through this, however, in later life, is that I've been able to represent my Ashkenazi heritage through tracing the genetics of my family and finding family members and a history and a really rich tapestry that none of the individual family members had. And my representation of my Ashkenazi heritage is so ritualistic and so story-based and so part of the traditions mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it comes together beautifully. And I can spend mm, time with beautiful. people who are very religious within their particular Jewish traditions yeah. without practicing the religion and purely through a reverence for history and ability to talk about a wide variety of things, I am sufficiently Jewish for them to spend time in my company with a great <laughs> degree of respect. And what fascinates me through this process is that so much of what is embodied in religion is, in fact, something that's completely different. And a maturity to understand that enables you to move through, or I've been able to move through at least, I mean, traditionally, my experience with Judaism, even through my teens, was relatively hostile. My mother's not Jewish, which means I'm not Jewish, effectively. For people that mm-hmm. don't are against Jewish, I'm Jewish enough to be against. But for the Jewish community, I'm not Jewish in this context. And because I was dating an Orthodox Jewish girl for a period of time, obviously the assumption was that I would convert to Judaism. What I found prior to that was I got a scholarship to go to a university in Israel. And because I found out independently that this girl was cheating on me, for a better term, actually very directly cheating on me, I didn't take the university scholarship. It was a time where I had a had an internship at Apple as well. I would have come over to Cupertino if I'd not gone to Technion in Haifa. Mm-hmm. And I unfortunately couldn't go to Apple because I was going to Eifer and then the fellow who was going to get me to Apple was no longer at Apple, so I lost that as well. Mm. But in that process, the local Jewish community, not all of them, I still maintain friendships with a few of them, but the majority were really, really, really hostile to me. And through that experience, I realized that this was not an, and, you know, I did things like learn Hebrew and all this kind of silly stuff. And Mm. I realized that this was a community that I had to be very mindful of. Like this wasn't a welcoming community in general. And in contrast to this, now, well, I was in my late thirties, but now I'm 40. I have such a reverence for the history and I've also done things like I've collected, I have one of them, but I've contributed to the translation. There are these books that were written by Jewish communities in Eastern Europe after the Holocaust to try to illustrate what had actually occurred yeah. in very visceral yeah. terms, talking yeah. about how, um, you know, first the various, they're not commissars because that's a Russian term, but the, the German equivalent of the commissars would come into the community and then progressively things would get worse, worse, and much worse. Mm-hmm. And this is documented in infinite detail by people who are just regular people. You know, I've had these things that I've kind of championed in some light, which gives me something more to talk about when I engage with people whose children, and in some cases grandchildren, have moved to Israel I've never been a Zionist. My father was very anti-Zionism. Um, certainly when I was thinking of going to Israel, it was to study and spend time with this girl. It wasn't for, you know, the, the state of Israel. 
Mm. But um, for a girl, I, I still yes, <laughs> one will do everything for. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, so f- through this, I've realised that actually, what fascinates me is that you can find acceptance in communities, even communities that've been hostile to you, if you're willing to embody your own version of their rituals in such mm-hmm. a way that mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. are not in any way an enemy or objectionable. You are someone actually that gives more to the conversation and acknowledges that mm. others can still find respect in shared things, which I yeah. think is an interesting conversation to be had. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing how far learning someone's learning about someone's culture and traditions in an honest way will go. Mm. Um, and it's probably, I think it's probably one of the most hopeful things, you know, when you look at. You know, the history of, you know, obviously different faiths have a lot of conflict between one another. And um, I think it's it's probably one of the most hopeful things about that for sure. We'll definitely, you know, and the other thing is, you know, keeping at it, right? Like that's the other piece is sort of like consistency. Um, It's hard to hate someone forever too, (laughs) right? When you keep coming back and learning and being honest um, and and intelligent. It makes it very difficult. I think that's what's lacking. Mm. Uh, yeah, a lot absolutely. of the contemporary narratives. And this absolutely. is where, you know, the importance of even doing little things like these kind of recordings and putting this out. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating through recording podcasts were I started now 11 years ago doing these things, initially in the area of artificial intelligence, then in the area of model rail, which is still podcast of mine still yeah by the way i saw your skype message about it and i wasn't sure if you were being ironic but no, 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 i think no, that no, it's an no. actual thing makes it even better no model rail radio is i need i need to explain this to people that are listening <laughs> to this thing this, is, this is a yes please explain your skype message so, so, so good model rail radio is a means of reaching a group of men who are extremely well educated extremely articulate but still hold a boyhood love of model trains. And when you <laughs> see this, so historically I recorded with artificial life folk who are typically academics, have all the quandaries and problems that academics Which, have. by the way, volume two of this podcast should absolutely be Let's Talk About AI. Certainly. Uh, although I'm probably going to be – anyway, let, let's explore that in volume two, <laughs> pilot two. Um, <laughs> model Rail Radio was an experiment – associated with could this is an unintentional community created it was an experiment associated with could i record a podcast on a topic that i didn't really know much about but with a call-in format so my background interest is associated with the it's not really represented very well in this country because public radio has a kind of tarnish to it here but with public radio of the broad kind of bbc and to a lesser extent the australian broadcast corporation the abc's public radio so i as a child growing up loved listening to public radio and it made me very sensitive to the qualities that public radio had in particular Mm. no sponsorship although in this country that's slightly perturbed but let's just assume no sponsorship and also a level (laughs) of public radio is supposed to be a level of detail associated with human intimacy that you would have intimate conversations broadcast to many people who would be very receptive to the intimacy in the conversations. Yeah, so and this is one I, of the things that's one of the things that I love about radio too, mm. is that intimacy piece. Mm. Love it. Most definitely. So in this context, I thought, okay, I've been doing this with artificial life academics and hobbyists for about four or five years now. We had the late Douglas Adams 
which is an interesting story associated with Richard Dawkins as well. But let's just talk about the late Douglas Adams had some audio that he recorded for Biota, which is the community that basically encompasses the artificial life community that I'm a part of. But also there's the International Society of Artificial Life, which I'm also a board member on, which is the academic thing as well. Biota historically was about getting intellectuals such as Richard Dawkins from a variety of different areas together. Douglas Adams was one of these people as well. There have been a variety of folk that have participated in Biota. And this is a community which is now changing very dramatically um, because it's now an institute and it's now potentially going to be getting public funding and a variety of other things. I'm not part of that. Well, I'm kind of part of that discussion, but I'm not really a part of that. For me, it was always about getting people from all over the world to contribute to this idea of let's talk about what we're simulating. Let's talk about simulation science. Let's talk about frivolous things like how do spiders think? How do you simulate a spider? (laughs) You know, how do you do these kind of things? And this became a body of work which is about, I don't know, maybe 300 hours worth of audio, which is the Biota Podcasts. About Mm. 200, at its peak, about 200 people listened and about 20 people actively participated in this thing. Hey, I've had webinars do worse. It's no, it's it's actually probably slightly bigger than this thing because people, for every you know, for every one person that will contribute, there are a hundred people will listen. For every hundred people will listen, there's you know, for every one person that's listening, there are another hundred that appreciate the listing and will will tune oh, in. Oh, okay, you were under so, you were underselling. So yeah, it's actually probably a little bigger, and certainly mm-hmm. the number of people that know about this thing is bigger than I would estimate, particularly when mm-hmm. I start putting my genetics online and stuff like that. But I felt frustrated that I couldn't really get community growth like I was interested in getting, exponential community growth. So right. I thought, okay, let me find something frivolous here. Of my, I have many hobbies. I'm a man of many hobbies, which is a folly <laughs> that my wife makes fun of frequently, but it's just the nature of who I am. Good. And uh, You should be so, made fun of a little bit about it. That's exactly. absolutely but, par for the course. But, however, I'm also able to talk to a wide variety of things that most people can't talk to based on that. Which All right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. I attended an annual model train show with my father when I was a boy. I was given a train set of a very particular train uh, when I was a boy. Do you I'm remember simple- what kind of train it was? Yeah, it was called the Overlander. It went from the centre of Australia to South Australia. I don't think it went up to the Northern Territory. It was made by a company called Lima, which was based in Spain, I think. And, you know, oh, I know it's beautiful. Ex- I got to look up this engine. No, it wasn't. It was plasticky. It was not. I mean, it's a beautiful <laughs> no, the engine, actual, the actual. Yeah, the actual thing. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so I'm sympathetic to. And also, I need to point out when I was 16, I started working in a physics institution as a programmer. And in that environment, I learned the language of physics in about three months that these physicists would use because they had their own foreign language. Mm. So I'm well aware that I can pick up a language, in inverted commas, an English Mm. language, but Mm -hmm. where it has terminology and what have you in a relatively short period of time. So what I did with Model Rail Radio initially, and there were two, I've got to point out, there were two other podcasts. One of the podcasts the fellow created it is now deceased. The other podcast has kind of gone through a couple of permutations. They were both very commercially oriented. The first one was associated with a, a convention that the guy ran, the main host ran, trying to get people to the convention, very much a kind of New England thing. And the other guy was just desperately trying to get money from people, which was kind of sad in the initial interaction, and then kind of matured more into description. But he was always trying to find sponsors, and it was part of an early movement in podcasting, which is your hobby should make you a lot of money. So find sponsors, get the 
listen oh, that's to that's a terrible way to do a hobby. Listen. Believe me. Anyway. Oh, I believe it. So, in contrast to this thing, I produced Model Rail Radio initially, which for the first two shows was a monologue. And then by the third show, I had a guest host who contributed a vast quantity of information. By the fifth show, I had people calling in. I had a couple of people calling in. By the tenth show, I had five people plus two guest hosts on a roster. And so it went on. And in parallel to this, it grew exponentially in terms of the listener base. So now it's more than 400,000 unique IPs per show. What that means in practical terms is... I can go anywhere in the world and there will be listeners. And it's actually quite astonishing mm. that this thing is so broad, be it in South America. I've never been to South America, but for example, in the Bay Area, there are, in terms of people that have contacted me, more than 200 active people that have contacted me. And mm. the difference between listeners that contact me and the broader listenership is for every one person that contacts you, there's typically you know, 50 plus that will not get in contact, but just love the content. So Model Rail Radio is a thing which is beyond understanding in a kind of intended consequences thing. Mm -hmm. But I've continued to do it for, this is the eighth year. Last year through work commitments, it was harder. I missed a few recordings and it was kind of more Mm -hmm. difficult to put out. Mm -hmm. And the community is a self-sustaining community. Yeah, I would so imagine so. They they can exist without me. I'm yep. I'm just secondary to this whole thing. But it's the it, best type of organizing, Tom. Exactly. And what it's shown to me, and what it's really about, is a certain group, predominantly men, but also transgender folk as well, which is the next largest demographic. It's men, then transgender folk. The transgender model rail community is amazing. Really? Yes. This so is happens- fantastic. This is the best news I've heard all day. So what happens is, I've got a number of friends that are transgender. It seems like there's a variety of different ideas and thoughts and just depth associated with exploring one's sexuality and it's associated with changing oh, yeah. these things. Very, very broad, very diverse. Yeah, absolutely. There are certain things too. that they can't, they don't want to get rid of. And one of these things is the model rail hobby. So... <laughs> It's. I think there's a documentary there. I pitched it to a couple of independent documentary folk. But there's sufficient numbers, and also it's a self-recognized community, which is what's even more beautiful about it, mm. is that yeah, I absolutely. know if I – and this, the positive associated with this was meeting people independently who were transgender, who were coming – who were in the Bay Area, coming to one of my talks on artificial life, looking them up on YouTube and finding that they were model railroaders. <laughs> so the correlation is I'm sure they were probably happy to meet one another too yeah. if they hadn't no, before. That's amazing. It's astonishing. And it's the most beautiful organic thing. So for example, okay. I met I met listeners in Australia, in South Australia, a couple who were both older, transgender, you know, now women, lived together. One had a layout in the basement, one had a layout above. They were doing different scales. Mm-hmm. They were but it was just so, and actually one of them's actually stayed with me. One of them passed away, unfortunately, she had a brain tumor. But one of them stayed with me uh, last year. I just think this is an amazing, so this really is what Model Rail for me is about. It's actually amazing. about the people behind it. And the fascinating, I've met a fellow who I think of in terms of probably the top three most important people I've met in my life. He is certainly in the top three. He was, he's a brilliant academic. Very, very deep knowledge. 
he comes, he flies into California, although he's retiring, I think, this year. But he flies into California and he gives feedback associated with the water table issues in California. So mm. very deep environmental scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Wow. And he has a narrative. And not only was he a prisoner of war in Vietnam, but he is someone who is currently being censored associated with that by there's a movement, which I talk about. This is another thing that I'm passionate about associated with the fact that the US won the Vietnam War. And when I first heard about this movement in 2005, I thought this was the most crazy. It, you're familiar with Ann Coulter, I'm assuming. Too Anne familiar. Coulter Too was familiar. was the first person to say this out loud that I heard, and I thought this is unbelievable. And then universities started teaching it. And then there was a change. Now the History Channel, their history of Vietnam that they put out, has this notion that the U.S. actually won the Vietnam War? Oh yeah, the history. Oh, let we could head, we could go a while Kai, about the History Channel. Head yeah. Del Kai left Vietnam, and the South Vietnamese lost the conflict, and they were the cause of everything. Wow! This fellow is actively huh? censored because his account of being a prisoner of war, for a variety of factors that we can get into in a future recording, contradicts the, this dominant narrative. Wow. Mainly associated with time frame, but also associated with location, a variety of other things. Uh huh. Right. Fascinating individual. I never would have met this man. I, I never would have talked this man without Model Rail Radio. My view is that Model Rail Radio. So this guy's was- also a model train enthusiast, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So while this thing looks like, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, chuckle, chuckle, Model Rail Radio, it actually has been a very important vehicle in my life. Associated. Firstly, can I create a huge, overwhelming community? I mean, if I ever stopped this thing, they would hunt me down. <laughs> I'm serious, Jack. Amazing. So, Good. And so, well, they should, obviously. Most definitely, because clearly I'm being very irresponsible. Absolutely. The density of what interests me of the community as well is some communities. For example, earlier, well, I don't know when, maybe 2011, perhaps. I was involved, another hobby of mine, which is probably more, I'm more involved with than model railroading in terms of some fundamental things, is associated with toy soldiers and wargaming and this kind of stuff, which mm-hmm. is something from my early childhood. It's associated with childhood friend, variety of oh, I'm, and other we related We totally stuff. have a conversation about wargaming. War I'm so, all about it. Anyway, I did a wargaming podcast for about six months until they kicked me off because I gave a negative review of a company that sponsored this well actually a company that advertised in the sponsoring magazine of the podcast obviously i didn't create this podcast because of the s word but i was on the podcast for six months i'd never been contacted by more troubled let's just call them troubled people fascinating people as well the people that clearly had serious mental health issues and were war gamers mm-hmm. in the model yeah. railroading fraternity although they are out there yeah, yeah. far lower group of people. And I don't know what the, why wargamers are particularly like this, but, um, the model rail folk, only a small number of dangerous individuals, very easy to block them. Artificial life, surprisingly higher group of these individuals. So mm. within the model rail hobby, I think it's to do with the amount of detail and time that needs to go into it. It's the constant failure, returning to an earlier topic, mm. but it's something that has created this community of people which I think is actually, it's, it's an accidental community that I created, but it's a community which is so central to my life. And when I, for example, I mean, when I go to Australia, I've got, I've got a book here called The Periodic Table of Hip Hop. 
which <laughs> is basically taking elements of hip hop, putting it on the periodic table, connecting them like elements, what have you. I was in Sydney in the last day I was in Australia, second, well, last full day I was in Australia. And one of these model rail radio guys tracked me down. I'd previously, because I was completely booked out, I was literally doing five meet and greets a day in Australia. I said to him, look, I'm just, there's no way I can come get together. He said, look, I'm going to get you just before, just before lunch, after breakfast. You've got an hour. I'll meet you then. I said, okay. Howdy folks. Tom Barbelay here. Unfortunately, as I found a few hours before when I was recording model rail radio, there is a Skype bug associated with longer recordings. Maybe just the version of Skype that I have in any case. So everything after this point is virtually unlistenable. Thankfully, it's only about two and a half minutes worth of audio where Jay and I agree to record podcasts in the future. But with future recordings, we will have to stop and restart at periodic intervals, which I've certainly used previously in other podcast recordings in order to avoid these kind of bugs. But the good news is that Jay and I will be recording future podcasts in a very similar format. So stay tuned for more recordings coming very soon.